forget. Take your seats! Please! Please, God! gonna happen if you got nominated, but you don't have to pretend anymore. You're a real actor now. Mom, can you give me some money, please? Mom, can you give me some money, please? I defy you, stars! Where were we? Line? Can we just go back, please? Can we just cut? Can we just cut? I've had just about enough of this nonsense. Good afternoon. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Thank you. Welcome back to another episode of Losing It Over Leo. Uh, this We haven't had this, this. We do this series like once a year, it seems like, uh, Pierre. Yeah. At this point. At, well, there's not many Leo movies to go around anymore, fortunately. Well... We, we, we've got a couple we haven't covered. I actually do have, I, it's, it's mostly in my head. I haven't made the spreadsheet yet, but we mm. definitely, I definitely do have ideas of how we can fill out the rest of the gaps that we haven't covered yet. Don's Plum is coming. Don's, It'll probably okay. be coming forever. One day. <laughs> we'll get there. As you can probably guess, if you're listening to this in 2023, and if you're not, yeah, I, that's awesome. I'm so glad that we're still easily available long after 2023 but uh if you're listening to this in 2023 you can probably guess what this is about we're going to talk about the new martin scorsese epic killers of the flower moon which is the first thing leonardo dicaprio's been in since don't look up and it's the first thing that martin scorsese has made since the irishman there's a lot of notable things about this movie we'll, we'll get to all of them as we're going through but generally I wanted to ask Pierre first, how you doing? And second, what do you generally think of Killers of the Flower Moon before we get into it? I feel good, and I thought the movie was good. <laughs> nice. What did you think? I, uh, you're going to have a very hard time getting me to say anything bad about this movie. I liked okay. it a lot. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's the two-second review right there. Uh, I'm... Once once we start talking about this movie, I think we're just going to go full spoilers once we actually get into it. So now you've had our, our quick thoughts. Let's get into a little bit more. So the first thing I think we should talk about, actually, the first thing I wanted to talk about just before we get into the movie, because um, I want to talk about it like seriously at the start, and I don't think that it's going to be worth it to put it in everywhere. This movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, is a story about the Osage Nation in, um, I believe they're in Oklahoma. But anyway, the North American indigenous Osage Nation. And it is very, like, it's it's obvious, we're talking about a Scorsese movie. Like, it's being told by a white guy from New York. And while I think that, I think that this movie is told as respectfully as he can, like, frankly, and... Un, not even unreasonable, frankly, a like uncommon amount of respect in this movie compared to, you know, preview movies from movies from history that have depicted Native Americans. Um, 
it is ultimately not told from the Osage point of view because that is a limitation of what he's able to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sucks. I hope that in the future we will get the opportunity to see a depiction of these events from the Osage point of view. I've actually seen a lot of uh, good posts on Twitter from modern day current Osage people who um, have pointed out, you know, what potential Osage filmmakers could adapt and could do differently. And I think that that's uh, very cool. I think that that's exactly the kind of discussion I would want this movie to promote. But what I want to say is for what it's worth, like Martin Scorsese Despite me describing him as a white guy from New York, he is one of the few, he's like one of the greatest living filmmakers. And he's one of the few that can get $200 million to tell a story like this. Like, unfortunately, there just are very few people outside, like very few other people, um, indigenous or not, that can even get that kind of money to tell this kind of story. Uh, That said... I do want to use this opportunity to point out that there are lots of indigenous filmmakers and they are making awesome story. Very, I've I've recently had the pleasure of being at the Imaginative Film Festival here in Toronto, which currently has its online program going. I'll link to it in the show notes, though it is ongoing, so I don't know how much of it there is left. Um, But at Imaginative, they highlight indigenous voices and some of those movies are incredible. Like I've seen, I think I've seen six movies there. And one of them was also with Lily Gladstone and was just incredible. Like that's actually the first time I saw Lily Gladstone in a movie. And it was, uh, it was, it was such a beautiful story told in a way that, uses a lot of tropes I would not tropes uses a lot of storytelling devices I was familiar with but really um uses them in interesting ways to tell a story that uh I haven't seen this way before uh the movie's fancy dance by the way but anyway um I don't want to dwell too much on it here because um that's not quite what we're here to talk about, but I do want to just point out that there are indigenous filmmakers out there making awesome movies and people should support them because right now we don't like indigenous or not, we don't actually have another Scorsese lined up. When when Scorsese does die, there's not going to be another filmmaker who can get $200 million to make a movie like this. And there should be. And that person should not necessarily have to be a white person from New York. Like, Uh, If you have the opportunity to go and see more films from more diverse viewpoints, please do. And especially in the case of today, like, let's get indigenous filmmakers that can make these stories and tell them the way that they deserve to be told. Yeah, we've we've come a long way from, you know, having an indigenous person being booed at the Oscars to now we are celebrating them in movies, but ideally... You know, within 40 years or something, we'll get to a point where we have, you know, an an indigenous person that is a prestigious filmmaker as well. And that Mm. can happen if we, you know, support, support smaller creators, and that'll slowly grow the education and, you know, creativity of, uh, you know, indigenous peoples and, uh, I mean, all tons of minorities. Uh, Because right now, they're (laughs) like... A lot of the greatest directors are still usually end up being white men, unfortunately. I'm not saying that as a skill thing, but 
I think that's just the way we have we've allowed access to certain resources to certain people. Yeah, and, th- those are the people who have the opportunities, and it's great for them that they were able to use them. I love that we have Spielberg and Scorsese and Nolan in the world, but like those can't be the only perspe- the only people telling stories. For sure, yeah. I don't know how we transition yeah. out of that. <laughs> That's like a heavy topic. Anyways, so, back to the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like I'll just say I'm actually helping. Uh, co- I'm actually covering that for ContraZoom Pod as well. So uh, when this goes up, when this episode goes up, I will link to as many imaginative things as are published by that point, as well as just to their website. Um, and then. As time goes on, like in a week or so, I'll update this description with a link to the Imaginative episode of ContraZoom because mm-hmm. Imaginative has been going on for 25 years, which is sick. I hope it goes on for more and I hope it's a lot bigger. Like I've, I've, been, to, I've been to some screenings that were completely full there. I've also been to one or two that were not and they don't do a lot of screenings. So like they should be full screenings all the time. I agree. Anyway, what was I going to say? Pierre. Martin Scorsese. We've yes. talked about him a bunch on this on on this show. Um, actually, it's possible we've talked about him more than any other director. Probably him and Nolan. Yeah, um, well, he has a lot of movies, and a lot of his movies are really are classics. So, well, makes and sense. also, and also, six of his movies, including the one we're talking about today, have Leo in them. So we've talked about five of them with. Including today, we have not yet talked about Shutter Island. It's coming eventually. What are your What are your thoughts on Scorsese? Other than that, he's one of our greatest living filmmakers. I I think he's just really he's very he's interesting because he's able to capture so many different styles of film. If that makes sense, like obviously he has the preferred. you know, themes like he, he really likes these movies about gangsters. And if it's not gangsters, it's some type of criminal, um, you know, that slowly rises through the ranks and then the government comes in. <laughs> so like he has kind of a formula, but also he, he has a, an amazing track record when he branches out of that. I, I mean, I remember Hugo, which was from 2010, uh, being an like an outstanding movie, and that's like almost like a kids movie. You're not a, a family movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at, well, I'm trying to think. Like the Aviator is is an amazing biopic mm-hmm. as well. Um, but he's like, like he ha- he just has so much raw talent, and the fact that he's 80 and still like making amazing movies is like really a testament to his skill and I don't see him stopping. Like he looks very like active and healthy. Like this isn't like a, uh, like he's not, he's not being like pushed along by Hollywood to make movies. Like he, he really loves doing this and I'm always excited to see what he does, especially because I think it's a rare talent to him. He he can make a three hour movie and you're just never bored. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely extremely rare but he does it very consistently and i think it's um i think what's really interesting is like i wasn't bored during this movie but i wasn't bored in a very different way than like with oppenheimer 
because Oppenheimer, I wasn't bored throughout the whole thing, but Oppenheimer felt the three hours to me went by so quick because they felt like they were very contained in, it felt like it was telling me the story of one event. This movie felt like it was telling me the story of 10 years because it was. And so like when I got out of this movie, I didn't feel bored during the movie, but I felt like I had just spent a day in the movie where with Oppenheimer, like I went in at 10, got out at a, got out at one in the afternoon. And I was like, Wow, all right. Feels like it was like a minute and a half. Yeah, Oppenheimer is paced. It feels like, or it is paced very quickly for a three-hour movie. So it's like just, you're constantly going, right? Whereas this, I I felt very relaxed. And I wouldn't say that in a bad way, right? Like Oppenheimer is just a lot of information (laughs) being forced onto you. Uh, And whether you like that or not is up to you. But this wasn't like, this was a very patient movie. And I never felt like I was overwhelmed with, how much they were trying to cram into it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess like on the subject of Scorsese, you know, not stopping anytime soon. It's so funny to me a little bit how, you know, people, um, younger filmmakers, you know, I'm saying younger and I mean, Quentin Tarantino, who's already, he's not young, but like younger filmmakers will say, yeah, I think I'm going to stop soon. uh, Cause I want to like end it on a good note. And Scorsese is like, I only regret that I don't have more years to live so that I can continue to make movies forever. Yeah, well, to I can see why he's not scared that he'll end it on a bad note because I don't see him ending it on a... I think the closest you could get is, like, I wouldn't... I would, the Irishman, which I wouldn't say is a bad note. It's just, like, it felt like kind of a swing and a miss, you know, but not, like, a bad movie. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I yeah. think I I didn't vibe with The Irishman very much, but also I definitely, the more I think back on it, I haven't seen it in a while, but the more I think back on it, the more I wonder if like, that's not in large part due to just how I watched it. Like going to see this movie, it's um, the scope, especially made it almost necessary that I see it in a theater with no distractions where with Irish, with the Irishman, for whatever reason, when I watched the Irishman, I started it at midnight in my apartment. So I don't know why I started it then because it meant it wasn't going to get done until three in the morning. And so I was falling asleep by the end of the first hour because the (laughs) Irishman is like, it's paced very well for what it is. It's just paced pretty slowly. And so you feel the three hours and really, you know, the more I think back on it, the more I realize that like, I just need to give the Irishman another chance because I did not get a very good experience out of it. And that's at least part of the reason I didn't like it as much. And even then, like I acknowledge it was a great movie with great performances. I just didn't like it that much because I watched it in bad conditions, clearly. Yeah, I I think, there's there's a lot of fact it's just also the idea of i mean even this movie i'd say this is a was a good movie but i would i think i would have struggled more if i was at home for three and a half hours because then you're like looking at the clock and you're like i don't know you can go on your phone you can you can do chores (laughs) i I might fold clothes while i watch the movie or something i don't know but yeah, yeah, it's, and, it's definitely, like, there. there is a difference in the presentation, for sure. Mm-hmm. 
also, there's a couple of other notable things about this movie. Um, obviously, this is a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. It's his sixth movie with Martin Scorsese. But I believe uh, this is the first movie that Scorsese has done with both Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, uh, which is notable because it's wild that those are like his two most frequent actors. And this is the first time he's had both of them in one movie. But also, this is, I believe, the first time that Leonardo DiCaprio has been in a movie with Robert De Niro since the very first episode we covered on our Leo show. Uh, which was This Boy's Life, where, and this is maybe foreshadowing, Robert De Niro plays Leonardo DiCaprio's evil dad. <laughs> He's very good at playing evil father figures, to specifically Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wild that it's only happened twice, considering how good he is at it. Yeah, I would watch another one. So, um, yeah, bef- I mean, we're, we're going to talk about DiCaprio at length here later, but uh, what did you think of this? I guess we'll probably talk about De Niro's performance as well uh, in, in more length, but, like, what do you think of this as their, like, collaboration together, the 10th collaboration between Scorsese and, and De Niro and the 6th collaboration between him and DiCaprio? Wait, sorry, what was the question? Just sort of, like... What do you think about all these people back in the same room oh. for the first time? Um, I I think I was hoping for something more, what's the word, eclectic? <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word for it, but I'm going to use it because it sounds right. Uh, I, I think they're all, they're all legends in their own right, uh, but I don't, there's just something about their relationship that never really clicked for me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of um, an issue that I have with the movie is that I never really felt drawn to the characters or truly connected with like what was happening in the movie. You know, I felt like I was watching this thing and it was very sad, but not to the level of like, uh, I'm trying to think like in Wolf of Wall Street, for example, it's like, you really know who Jordan, Jordan Belfort is. Mm-hmm. It's a very interact. Like all the characters are very colorful and interesting, um, and you get to know them very well, and you know all know their motivations and stuff. Whereas in this movie, I feel like, like I was waiting for that scene, like the scene between Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, and I feel like I never got that scene, and okay. I, that's kind of how I feel about the rest of the spoilers for my thoughts on the movie, but. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I wish we got a more compelling movie for them to truly knock it off. Because yeah, these are two these are Scorsese's like golden boys basically, and you know at his age, I doubt he wants to commit to another golden boy. <laughs> this yeah. So like this this is it, and you know I, I think it, I think they were very good together, but there was something missing in my opinion. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who those people were? Specifically, do you want to summarize the movie for us before we get into oh, the rest? Oh, gosh. Uh, so This is a big movie. There's a yeah, lot that goes on. And there's a lot of... Wait, let me... I, I want to get the names right. So let me... Killers of the Flower Moon. Let me go to the Wikipedia page. So we have Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, who is newly arrived to... Uh, this place is a... It's an Oklahoma reservation. Uh, home of the Osage, Osage Osage people, 
and they had discovered oil. So basically he ends up in this city where the indigenous peoples are treated basically as like, like, well, they are, they are the upper class there in that city. And there's a bunch of, bunch of Americans coming in to make money from the indigenous peoples, oil money. So Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest comes in to work for his uncle, who was a sheriff in the town or was a sheriff. I can't remember if he currently is. I think he was at the start. By the end, he had retired, I think. He may have been at the start. I don't fully remember that. Um, but yeah, anyways, he he's there. And then his uncle basically hints towards, a high, or gives him a job as a driver in the city uh, to drive around Sorry, indigenous his people. His uncle was a cattle rancher. Cattle rancher. But then you have the sheriff thing? Or he, he knew he the used sheriff. To be? Oh, he knew like, the sheriff. Okay. The, the sheriff is also important. I can't think of, I, I can't find who the sheriff was. It was okay. not cool. Uh, but yeah, anyways, he uh, basically hints towards Ernest that he should go marry one of the, um, what, what's their last name? The Burkhart, Burkhart children? Burkhart uh, is Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, the Kyles. I guess the Kyles. Okay, who are who are they? They are a very rich family from oil money. They're and... one of the original. Uh, they're one of the original families from the Osage. Mm. And they, uh, you know, there's a lot of Americans in the city that are trying to marry women from these families so that they can get their hands on the money, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, Ernest falls in love with Molly Kyle, who who he was driving around and he marries her and um, eventually we find out that there's kind of more of a scheme to this marrying of, of these rich women than was initially thought. And, and in fact, they are being murdered. (laughs) So they're all being murdered, unfortunately. And it's uh, yeah, I I guess I don't even want to say the movie just kind of follows Robert De Niro's character. Uh, and Leonardo DiCaprio's character is sl- slowly plotting to kill these women to take their money. And eventually, yeah. uh, you know, they'd kill them all and the white families would own all the oil money. It's essentially, it seems like the plot of Robert De Niro, but also the town in general. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard to fully describe how it plays out because like what you said is true, but the way, but that makes it sound almost a little bit like it's, it's it's like they're just trying to murder these women, which is true. That's what's, that's what's happening. But it's more like, it's more like William Hale, uh, Robert De Niro, his, his extended family is trying to marry into the he's they're trying to marry into the original families and then like engineer a situation be that through murder or marriage or whatever else in which like at the end of days they get the inheritance of the entire osage and it ends up going to william hale somehow it's like they're trying to like fully engineer this situation through whatever means possible and the entire town is like mostly pawns in Hale's arsenal. I don't know if that's the right way to say that uh, that particular turn of phrase, but yeah, yeah, it's it's 
like when I when I say it like they were murdering all the women, it it it, it sounds like the movie is just oh they're killing them one by one, but it's an extremely slow process that happens over ten years, you know. And it and a lot of the murders, the the way the murders play out is almost it's almost inconsequential in a weird way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when it's convenient, one of them will be bumped off. It's not like there's very much planning that goes into almost any killing in this movie. It just yeah. sort of happens when it, when it works out. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. There wasn't, there wasn't like a set plan of like, okay, we got to kill them this week. And then like next month we're going to kill. It was like whenever they kind of felt like it. And you know, that kind of contributes to the movie's feel of, I want to, it's just kind of like, there's this level of dread throughout the movie and hopelessness because yeah, you're right. Like a killing will happen. And I feel like in most movies, they, you know, set up some kind of, you know, counteraction for the murders, but as you know, what happened in real life and uh, has portrayed in the movie, nothing really happens until the third act when the FBI finally comes in after like you know dozens of people have been killed and like i think what's kind of wild is like if you compare this to a poirot movie for example very very different kinds of movies but if you compare this to like a poirot mystery a murder happens and there's no way the murderer can get away with it even if, even though the murderer was so meticulous in planning out every detail that it was the perfect crime and they still don't get away with it in this movie, no one's meticulous at all. Like the one time they give specific instructions to a guy on how to avoid getting caught, they tell him, make sure you shoot the person in the front of the head so it looks like he reasonably could have done it himself. And he shoots him from way far away in the back of the head. Uh, so like the one time anyone gives instructions, it doesn't work out. And it still doesn't matter because the town doesn't care enough to actually solve these murders because they're not people they care about. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty dark, like, uh, like how casually all this happens. You know, I think that's the biggest sticking point is that there is no like, like thrill. I don't want to say there's no, there's no like thrill of the murder, if that makes sense. I feel like in some movies are really, kind of glorify the murder you know and they'll be like it's like intense and like and like it's an action scene whereas this it was just like it happened and then i mean as as part of the kind of conspiracy is that you know all all the all the white people in positions of power in in that city uh you know end up not caring because they're sort of kind of part of it and it's never it's never spoken that they're they're ne- they're never like we as white people are trying to take this oil money from the indigenous people, but you just they just kind of give each other knowing glances and they talk if like the, a certain way, you know. If the money happens to fall into the hands of the sheriff and no one's there to take it, well, then I yeah. guess he'll just take it then. Yeah. So it's a, there's this kind of cruel casualty about the whole thing where it feels like it's just you know part of business they are treating it as a business it it's like compare this to something like the godfather and the godfather is 
also great for very different reasons. And actually, this might not be the right comparison. But if you think about The Godfather, like the deaths in those are built up to any actual death that that happens in The Godfather feels kind of important. In this movie, it's like a lot of the deaths feel deliberately, the murders as a whole are important. The individual murders are also like actually important, but the way that they're carried out feels almost inconsequential. Like, like if they're not built up to, they just happen. It feels like, like there's no voyeuristic pleasure you get from watching like the buildup to some, to someone killing someone and then carrying it out and then eventually getting, you know, and then eventually like justice coming for them or something. You don't get any, you don't get any voyeuristic pleasure out of any part of that. It's like, these just look, these are just bad killings that look awful and make you feel bad, which, yeah. uh, I don't know. Martin Scorsese pulls it off. I don't know how to end that sentence. Yeah, he does. He, he picked, he picked a, a very specific, cause I, there, I think there's some movies that really glorify the murdering and you could tell, I mean, there, there's literally a, part of the movie that parodies true crime podcasts and movies about, you know, people making money off of the stories of people dying horrible deaths. And then none of that money ends up going to, you know, help the people that were actually, you know, victims. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there, there is a, there is a certain self-awareness for Scorsese that I think he really wanted to restrain from glorifying this in any way. And, I think I think he did that very well. You know, like you 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 look at his other movies, and you could say like, in Wolf of Wall Street, he kind of glorifies the lifestyle of someone that, you know, screws his friends over, and makes tons of money. Um, See, even though like, I think that's part of the movie, I think we talked about that, right? Where yeah, it's that's it's the theme like, of the movie is that everyone still wants it. Exactly, like with the Wolf of Wall Street, I would definitely say that. Martin Scorsese does not have much respect or like, like Jordan Belfort very much, but the way that he portrays him, like there is, you know, it's very possible to come out of that movie and be like, I want to be just like that guy. You shouldn't. That's exactly the kind of lifestyle he's critiquing. But like, you don't come out of this movie and go like, I want to be like Ernest Burkhardt. Yeah, no, (laughs) he's portrayed as very stupid. Very and... stupid and very evil. Like, and actually, I think that's so. That's like one of my favorite parts of this movie is, uh, most of the most of the cast, like the enti- almost the entirety of the white cast in this movie, is just abjectly evil. Like they're just flat out evil. But also the way that Martin Scorsese like portrays them, it's kind of a clown show. Like, it, it's not that you, you see these people and you're like, these are the people in charge. But it's also like, like, as a question, obviously. But it's also like, they don't seem like idiots. They just seem very, I mean, they're very silly. But they don't seem stupid, I guess. Um, yeah. Like, well, there's, a yeah. Scene in the, there's a scene at the end of this that I think is amazing. Uh, it's right when they go into court for Ernest Burkhart, when Ernest Burkhart is on trial for the murders. Um, they go into court and 
there's a little bit of quiet. Well, not really quiet. No one is specifically saying anything, but there's a lot of like court murmuring. And then Brendan Fraser pushes back his chair, stands up and goes, I haven't seen my client in three days. Or something like that. And just like immediately calls off the trial so that he can talk to Ernest Burkhart, who has never met him in his life. And so that they can like talk about what his defense is going to be for something that he cannot actually defend. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember I was reading some people didn't like Brendan Fraser in the role. I actually really loved him. I thought he was a highlight for me. He brought, he, he, he kind of brought some of the life in, I mean, obviously that like, it's, I think technically it totally clashed with the movie, but I think at that point, like they were literally in a room with like a bunch of the old white people we'd seen throughout the movie. And that's kind of when they reveal that, like, it's like, again, it's not like, they're not like the KKK. It's not an official organization, but they are all conspiring together technically, you know? And I think by that point, it's just so ridiculous that a character like Brendan Fraser's makes sense. I mean, there's a scene in the movie where, where Robert De Niro literally like spanks Leo. Leo with like a cricket. Oh, I guess it's, it's it looked like a cricket bat, but I think that was just did they make spanking devices back in the day or something? They definitely did make spanking devices. Yeah, like it's so, just a paddle. And that room was just very comedic, and that scene was comedic as well. So Brendan Fraser to me just felt like a natural progression of like this was all ridiculously stupid. I could totally see someone like him being a lawyer. Especially because yeah. he is a lawyer. He's he's going to be dramatic. Because, yeah, no, no. I actually don't even think that I would agree that it tonally clashes with the film that much. Like, it's obviously a very different tone for the movie than the most serious scenes in this. Mm-hmm. But, up, but, like, by that point, it just sort of drives home the idea that this entire... That, like, the the way that the white people in this movie are acting is so ridiculous and yet it's accepted and no one like no one sees it for what it, for the clown show it really is. And here's Brendan Fraser, like puffing up his chest and being the, and being the alpha clown for this entire operation, not for the, you know, not for the entire operation, but like he gets to be the representative in court of the silliest side that exists that shouldn't even have a case. And yet they're going to win because how could they lose? Yeah. Like John Lithgow's over there and he's being very serious and uh, no one cares. No one even likes him very much. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there is some really dark comedy in the movie that Scorsese kind of plays with. And you know, that, I think I, I like those aspects. Those, those felt very Scorsese in my opinion. I don't know. Um, Cause yeah, like overall he, he did, I could tell he was restraining himself. Um, but yeah. What, what did you think of the, like this, the side cast though? Like you had a lot, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an all-star cast, but you had some very, I'd say a lot of these actors I'd seen in various roles before, but I don't know their names, you know? Well, I think uh, before we talk about like the side cast at large, definitely the first of those actors we want to talk about is Lily Gladstone. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought she was great in this. I thought she was like the heart of the movie. Uh, and 
I really liked her um, interaction with Leonardo DiCaprio. I think they had like a good on-screen chemistry, but their the way that their relationship played out, I really liked the performance from both of them, and I just hated that relationship. It felt mm-hmm. so deeply one-sided. Um, like to me, it felt like Ernest Burkhart, Leo's character, did not see. Lily Gladstone as a human being at all. Uh, Molly Burkhart didn't see Molly as a human being at all. And just sort of like, he, he, I don't know. I, I think I'll get to it, but like, to me, it felt like there was a genuine love for something there, but it wasn't a love for Molly or like even caring who she was as a person. Meanwhile, on the other side, Molly loved what she could see of Ernest Burkhart but she just didn't see the full person. And so it felt to me, it was a really frustrating romance to watch because for as earnest as it was from both parties, it was like both of them loved something completely different that they built up in their heads that like wasn't real. So there's, so it feels like they're both talking past each other all the time, which is, uh, I thought that was really interesting. Like I thought that was... I think it's like really fascinating to see a relationship on screen that feels both sincere and that feels at the same time sincere and like both people do not actually care about each other, which is so strange. And I yeah. think it's pulled off here really well because Leonardo DiCaprio is great at doing what he's doing and Lily Gladstone ties the whole thing together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I did I did really like their dynamic. I thought I've I've never seen Lily Gladstone in something before, but she had such a calm confidence in her screen presence. Like she she was a very like I, I want to say like laid back character, right? But I feel like in in some actors' cases that just comes off as lazy. But she was able to like she could sit back and not really like move her face that much and like be acting that much, but you could just feel like this confidence like emanate from her, you know, and I think it fit the character very well. And I think one of like, one of the issues I have with the movies is I, I wish she got more to do, you know, or more screen time, or we could have really delved deeper into how she felt. You know, I think there is like, I don't want to judge Scorsese, but I, I felt a little like icky about how this is a, this is an Osage story or like, this is about like the, the like the terrorization of the Osage community by white people. But then we have, we are telling it from the white people's side and it just like, I get that, you know, Scorsese's great at, you know, doing that kind of because this this felt like the plot of this felt very similar to something like uh like goodfellas you know mm-hmm. is it goodfellas where it's like you know you have someone who wants to make money and then he kind of gets involved in something and he's balancing his family life sort of with you know committing crimes and he still loves his wife but he's committing crimes and and then it just and then the fbi comes in and it all falls apart right so like yeah. he's good at that structure i just it, it still feels weird to me that, you know, we have a white director, a primarily white cast, and then we have a primarily white cast for which the story is told through their lens. 
And we kind of mostly just see the indigenous peoples in this movie just struggling to survive, right? But that's really all we get from their perspective, you know? And to me, that feels, that still, I, I, I don't disagree that Scorsese was coming from this from a genuine angle, but I, I think that's an oversight. And I think that could have genuinely made the movie better too, because to me, like this, the second half, the, I mean, the, the second act of, you know, slowly killing the, the family off it, it just like, it was just very straightforward, you know, like they were slowly getting killed and we don't get to understand, like, like I wanted to see more of uh, the paranoia, you know, of what comes with your family slowly dying off. I would, I would have loved to see how uh, the people, the, the people from the Osage community, how they how more of how they felt and how they wanted, how they were reacting. You know, they, there was mentions of they sent money to Washington and stuff like that. But I thought we would see more of like their outrage and them trying to investigate as well, you know? Um, but, and I don't know what happened in real life, but to me, it just felt like they were a vehicle to tell the story of another white criminal. And obviously these white people weren't glorified, but I, I think the balance, there could have been more of a balance. Yeah, I think that, like, ultimately, at least in some part, that's kind of the limit. That, that's sort of the limitation of Martin Scorsese telling this story. Because, uh, like, a perfect version of this story would be told probably from, from the perspective of Molly Burkhart, her character's interaction with most, like very largely her family because her family is a big part of this but also the other osage people as well and like you know because because of the way this movie is made that's a big part of the reason that it that she's even though she is i would say one of the three leads she probably is like the third lead of those um, yeah well she's yeah. literally named <laughs> like she's named third true true and yeah and yeah, that's that sucks. You know, like she she was a she was a great actor in the movie, and she's I mean, sorry, she's she was a she still is a great actor, um, but I think she deserved more of a chance to really shine, and and yeah, and I guess that's all I can really say about that. I guess it, it also bothers me that it's you know produced by Apple, like the one of the biggest organized like white capitalist organizations in the world when this movie is a kind of a commentary on the greed of you know uh white white capitalist society you know well yeah white capitalists specifically in america yeah and <laughs> so, it's put together by apple yeah yeah so and again i'm happy they gave the money to make this movie but there's just part of me is just like it just feels weird that like the the money that this movie makes will go to Apple, and a lot of the money for the cast, like Leo, Leo made thirty million off this, and it's like, okay, well, what about like, as are any of the proceeds going to the people that were you know heavily affected by the tragedy? I, I can't say for sure, but uh, I think that it is worth being optimistic in that case because like the Osage do have a good, they have a very strong presence on this movie mm -hmm. behind the camera and in front of the camera as well. So realistically, 
they actually are getting some stuff out of this movie. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I why. don't. I don't disagree. And I'm happy this movie was made because I think it's better than if this movie was never made. And I'm yeah. happy that it was made by someone as good as Martin Scorsese. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I hope in the future we can, you know, make, even if like, I think even if it's bio, maybe like Scorsese didn't feel comfortable telling too much from like a perspective that's not his racially, but ideally in the future, I'd like to see, you know, I, I just, I really don't like the uh, portrayal of the positive or not. I don't like how these murderers keep getting these huge roles and, and are, are the ones that are mostly remembered in these movies. And they're always played by uh, white guys and, and, and these men. Yeah. You know, like, there's just part of it that feels weird to me, but sorry, I, mean, I sorry, go ahead. I think that I think that that has to do too with the kind of move, the kind of stories that Scorsese is drawn to. Like, no one but Scorsese is going to make The Wolf of Wall Street because Scorsese finds something clearly finds something deeply interesting about Jordan Belfort, even if yeah. he has nothing but contempt for the guy, mm-hmm. he still finds him interesting enough to center a movie around him. Mm-hmm. And here too, like. On the one hand, it's not that he heard about Ernest Burkhart and said, I must make a movie about Ernest Burkhart. But when Scorsese read the, read the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, that book is originally from the perspective, if there is a perspective, because it's a nonfiction book, it's not really a novel or anything. Uh, it is mostly from the perspective of the FBI. It's mostly from the perspective of Jesse Plemons' character, if there is mm-hmm. a like main perspective in that book. Um and yet, when Scorsese was adapting this, the character that he found most interesting, or at least, like, interesting enough to center the movie around, is Ernest Burkhardt. So, like, there's mm-hmm. clearly... Clearly, Scorsese is drawn to these... Something about these kind of, like, not even just not even just imperfect, like, deeply evil people that he wants to, like, center his movies around. And not necessarily, I don't want to say humanize, I don't want to say humanize because humanize normally comes with a positive connotation, Mm -hmm. but he is like giving them very nuanced portrayals. Like Ernest Burkhardt in this movie is a very complete person. He is not a good person. In fact, Mm -hmm. there's like almost nothing good about him, but he is like, he's evil in a very human way. Yeah. Well, I, I had read the, Initially, Scorsese wanted to cast Leo as as the FBI agent. So I wonder if initially, because Leo's an executive producer on this too. So maybe initially when they were planning this out, he did want to do it from the book's perspective, like the FBI perspective as in the book. And then it sounds like Leo himself was, he insisted on wanting to play Ernest Burkhart. So that might have shifted it and that might have been Leo's... I mean, maybe Scorsese was just like, oh, that, that's a great idea. We should do that because he likes that type of movie. But it well, sounds like I also, Leo. Uh, I also have heard a lot that this movie developed very actively, like went through a lot of different stages when he was mm-hmm. developing it with the Osage Nation. So, yeah. you know, um, I'm definitely not putting on the Osage that they wanted to portray anyone it, 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 from any specific perspective. Mm-hmm. But like, it sounds like, you know, you saying that and me having heard the um, some some people from Osage from the Osage Nation talk about it in interviews. 
my guess is that this movie went through a lot of versions before it mm-hmm. actually started shooting. Yeah, it was probably in, I mean, because of COVID, it was probably in pre-production for like two years. Uh, so the, I could see that. Scorsese and DiCaprio signed on to it originally in 2017. I don't wow, know when yeah. they originally planned production, but it's been in the works for six years. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, anyways, I, I don't want the... That was a huge tangent off of Lily Gladstone. She's great in this movie. And I'm ex- I know she will get a lot of Oscar buzz for this. And I'm excited to see what that does for her in the future. Because, yeah, she she with what she was given, she wasn't given too much compared to the other actors. But she was definitely, like, a, a huge highlight. So I think that's great. And, like, I don't know... I know she's been a professional actor for a while, but she hasn't been in that many things. Like I think of the, of the, um, of the cast in here that isn't actively movie stars. She's probably one of the more successful or like successful and has been in a lot of things, but like her career before this movie came out, apparently she was like thinking heavily thinking of a career switch because it just wasn't working out. And I am very excited for that to not happen so that I can see her in more movies. Yeah, for sure. Another person who was uh, originally thinking of a career switch, uh, Kara Jade Myers, who plays Anna Brown, Molly's main sister in the movie, like the sister of hers that gets the most screen time. She was great. That's That was the other person mm-hmm. I wanted to highlight from the supporting cast. She's, uh, I think that that entire family, as they're portrayed, they're all very confident and independent women. And um, I think Anna Brown is almost more, she's almost like more aggressively independent than Molly is, uh, which is awesome. It ends up like not, it, it ends up ultimately probably hurting her more than not in the end. Uh, but she has, she has like some really great scenes in this and her interaction with the rest of the cast, especially what was his name? Uh, Bill Smith um, played by Jason Isbell. Bill Smith is Ernest Burkhardt's uh, cousin and he has a lot of interaction with, um, with the other, with the other uh, Kyle sisters and I think that Anna and him have, um, they have some really great scenes together. That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, Anna, Anna was a huge, I mean, she only, she's, I feel like she only had like five minutes of screen time. But. It's got to have been more than that. Like, it's got to have been ten. It feels like more, yeah. But, yeah. She, she made the most of it. She really <laughs> makes a presence in the movie. And, uh, yeah, I'm sad. I wish we got to see more of her. I, I I just think like I, I wish I saw more of the sisters interacting in general. You know, I think mm-hmm. it would have been interesting to see the. I think it would have been more interesting to see the bond of that family and how hurtful it was. You know, every time that she had a family member die, uh, Molly had a family member die. Because uh, there was kind of a disconnect. Degree, but like, yeah, it's very yeah. Disconnect is a good word. It seems like very a lot of this movie feels a lot of the interaction, a lot of the things in this movie just generally feel like there's some distance. Mm-hmm. Like 
I mean, right down to the romance between Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone, Ernest and Molly Burkhardt. I feel like that is such a, they feel like such disconnected characters considering they're supposed to be in love, Mm -hmm. uh, which may or may not be by design, but I don't, I think it works. Um, But then also, like you're saying, whenever one of the Kyle sisters dies, it, we feel it. It's important to the story. But it's also it also feels like we see it at a distance because there's like a different part of the story we're closer to that's not that. Yeah. Yeah, there was uh, you felt bad because on paper, it's like you it's like you felt bad on paper, but you don't feel it in you and you don't feel the the loss uh, between the because especially like we don't get too many happy scenes between the sisters either. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's a couple scenes like when at the start when uh, Molly's like gossiping with her sisters about marrying uh, Ernest. But other than that, it's mostly kind of like, like there's a lot of disconnect. You know, when, when this the other sister dies, I think it was Rita and Bill when their house, when their house blows up. Yes. Um, yeah. That was like, I, I didn't really know anything about Rita. You know, Anna, I felt because she made such a big presence in that movie. But Rita, I just, I I can't really remember any of the scenes with her, you know. Well, by that point, like, what I feel most in that that section is, like, Bill also dies. And I don't feel Mm -hmm. sad for Bill. But at that point, the thing thing I feel, the, the emotion I felt the most was, like, up until that point, Bill had been implicated in the deaths of two different uh, indigenous women up to that point and mm-hmm. now here's a third one dying he just also happens to die at this point and mm-hmm. so the thing I see the, the thing I feel most in that moment is like well now something's up and now they can't ignore it anymore like this has to mean something which because isn't Bill died. <laughs> well not because Bill died but because like the same guy who's been involved with two murders has now been involved in a third death so it's like at yeah. this point you know Something's Something got to happen. Yeah. It's I not think... that something weirds up, because I think what Scorsese does really nicely in this is there is never any doubt what is happening or who the perpetrators are. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's very clear. Well, I, I thought it was interesting that I, I did like that aspect of, you know, it felt like there was, you know, the white conspiracy of taking that money and marrying them all. But then also, once you get into it and like like once the field was kind of being you know like uh, like once there were two sisters left it had become it's it's Ernest and uh Bill Hale's family versus uh what's his wait what's his name was the guy was the guy that died Bill uh, Bill the other Bill Bill Smith Bill Smith yeah it was like, because there's that scene where Ernest and Bill are in the living room and Bill kind of casually slips that he knows Ernest killed, uh, Ernest is killing people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's when Ernest is like, oh shit, I need to kill Bill now. But it's like, they were both kind of hinting that like, there was a competition there of who would get that money in the end. And oh. He, I... 
I was mixing up the characters a little bit. Actually, not too, too much. But I was thinking, when I said, when I introduced who Bill Smith was earlier, I said that was uh, Ernest's cousin. No, I'm thinking of Byron uh, Burkhart, who was yeah. as evil. But, yeah. like, he was, uh, he was uh, Ernest's, he was Ernest's brother. Sorry, I should not have derailed you there. Please. No, no, it's all good. Okay, <laughs> I get the confusion now. But yeah, there there was that scene where they kind of have a face off. It felt Game of Thrones esque almost, where they're like, like I know you killed, I know you killed one of the sisters, and then Ernest is like, oh shit, and then that's why that's essentially why Bill dies. I'm not sure why he would divulge that he knows that Ernest killed, but I think they, I think they both kind of knew it in the back of their heads that you know they they were both going for the money, and I'm pretty sure Bill killed his first wife as well um i don't i don't want to accuse him of anything i don't but but i think he did i know it was like portrayed as very suspicious that his first wife died and he moved on to another kyle sister very quickly very like two weeks later or something right yeah um so yeah there there was a there was a weird kind of rivalry there between all the white people as well and i mean it kind of shows that in the end it all just it came down to money you know, it's like the white people wanted the money, but they, they were, they were still like, it was them first, you know? So, so yeah. I think you bringing up like Game of Thrones is uh very, like, that's a, that's a really good comparison in a few ways, but like specifically the first time that I saw William Hale on screen, that's Robert De Niro's character. The first time I saw him on screen, he's talking about, he's talking about like, marrying the Osage women in a way that makes it sound like he's a king trying to marry off his princes to like other European nations so that he can, so that he can go from being just the king of France to being the king of France and Germany. Now Mm. that his like son has married the queen of Germany. (laughs) Like that's what it sounds like. He sounds like he's an old timey land baron. And like, I guess he kind of is actually. I mean, I think that's what's one of the things that's most effective at making him feel so evil right from the start is the very minute that he's on screen, he's like, so anyway, the people around me, these aren't really people. These are vessels behind which my money is hidden. How do we get that? How do we break open that door? How do we get it so that I can go in and retrieve the money that is rightfully mine? Yeah, that that and that's such a sick, like, mentality but it that's why it it never feels like because we've been saying evil which i would like say they are but they approach it from such a calculating standpoint you know it's not it's not like like the murders aren't like crimes of passion you know it's just like okay like i need i just want to slowly make sure that this oil money will become my grandchildren's and therefore mine so when it's convenient, I'm just going to kill this person. Like, it, it's the same with, you know, William Hale had a, a really good friend of his who was Osage and he owed him like $25,000 or something. So he approached it from like, well, he's my good friend, but he owes me a lot of money. So I took out an insurance policy on his life and in a few months when the insurance, when it's less suspicious, I'm going to kill him. And he just says it so casually. It's like, it's like matter of factly, like it just makes sense. You know, like 
I want my money back. Yeah, it's like, well, I mean, I'm sorry that he died, but he did owe me a lot of money and now he doesn't anymore. So yeah. it worked out. Yeah, it's, 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 I has like, I mean, they were obviously extremely racist, but there's no scene when they're like, ah, oh, like, I mean, there's a couple scenes where they're like, they comment on the savageness of, I, there's that one old couple that were talking about the children being half breeds and stuff and half savage or whatever. But there's no overtly like, like Robert De Niro's character is never like, I hate the Osage people. Like they're a bunch of disgusting. Like he actually compliments them quite a lot uh, oh, in the movie. Like, the very last thing he says, and it's not him, it's a letter from him, is like, I hope my good friends, the Osage, are doing well. I'd yeah. love to come back and visit you guys soon. Yeah, like there's just this weird sociopathic, like he doesn't understand what he's doing is evil, but like to him it's literally oh. just like, I'm just commit, I'm conducting business. That's all there is to it. It's like, it's, I, I really like, I really like um, in, in modern movies, there's a much, I am seeing, and maybe this is, this might just be because I'm better at watching movies now. But I see in a lot of modern movies a much better approach to racism than the type of racism that I'm uh, used to seeing or hearing about. Like, sure, plenty of people are out there who just say slurs. And it's very easy in a movie to like make to make people understand that your character is racist if you have him go up to someone and say a slur. Like, sure. But I think that like what's what's good in this movie is or a good about the portrayal in this movie is the presence of racism is very clear. It's very overt. Like the KKK marches at a parade and it's just like, it just feels normal in a way that's very wrong, but it feels normal. Like that's just an accepted part of the world. And the characters in this movie are very racist, very obviously racist, but like none of them are going around saying anything but nice things about the Osage because yeah. you know, they're not, they're not just going around saying slurs. Why would you do that? That's not yeah. going to, that's not going to make people like you. And yeah. they both don't see them as people, but also understand that it's important that in order for them to achieve their goals, they have to, they have to be able to walk around in the world with people more or less liking them at least day to day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a very realistic portrayal of uh, racism. I, I'd say, like, modern racism, you know, where it's, uh, like, there is a, like, for me, for example, I I almost kind of prefer it when I know someone is racist, like, because then it's like, you can avoid them, right? And you can, yeah. you can, you can chalk them off as like, I don't want to be near this person, I don't want to talk to this person. But there's a there's a greater deal of people that they're they're like they will they will treat minorities very well and but when it comes to it they want their money you know yeah and you see that with politicians with corporations where you know it'll be like there'll be programs to help minorities but also they're outsourcing work to some third world country and paying the people working there cents on the cents on the dollar for their products. And, well, and that, and, and that's that I w- I'd say that that period kind of reflects modern, the new modern racism. 
of the oil money was there and it wasn't so much about race. There wasn't overt racism. They just wanted money, but conveniently it was money to be taken from a certain minority to white people. You know, well, if you think like the whole engineering of these murders, like at the very beginning, the Osage negotiated a very good deal for them within, mm-hmm. within the system that exists. Mm-hmm. And so Bill Hale's plan is to get them out of the system, get that entire race of people out of the system so that only the white people can exist in the system that mm-hmm. exists for the white people. Yeah. And yeah, there's just a very slow kind of gathering of, it's all, I, I compare it to like, para, it's, they're parasites, you know, and you get that vibe of the movie of just like, they're slowly trying to work their way. And yeah, that's why I guess the Game of Thrones analogy works. Cause it literally is kind of Game of Thrones, but for the oil money and rather than, you know, the title of, of King. So mm-hmm. uh, like that, that is an interesting aspect of the movie that I think that did really work for me, the casualness of it all. And um, yeah. And I, I think there's, there is a couple of things I'm surprised they left out though. Like I just, during the movie, I was really wondering why the Osage women kept marrying these white guys. If they knew that, they were wanted their money. Um, and apparently it was because there was a clause where there was, there was a conservator conservatorship where you couldn't access your money unless you had a white guardian handling it for you in some cases. Okay. And I just read about this on Vox or something, but so a lot of these indigenous people couldn't access their money unless they married a white man or a white person. And that explains a lot because that during the movie, I, for me during the movie, I was just like, this feels very like, I obviously like the women are victims, but a part of me is kind of like, well, why do they keep marrying white men? You know, like it, it, it seems very obvious what their intentions are. And it, like, I mean, Molly even acknowledges that, like, he just wants my money, you know, mm-hmm. but I think he also just wants to settle down. So there's, there was a kind of, there, there, there was logic to it where they were like, they well, want to find a white guy so that they can access their money, but also they want a white guy that wants to settle down and have children and doesn't want to just take the money and booze around, you know? Well, and also they, um, they do touch on it. I don't, I don't think they touch on it as much as they could, but uh, they mention at one point, Bill Hale mentions this, so I don't know how reputable it is, but at one point Bill Hale sort of points out that Osage marriage is very slightly different. Uh, Like there's, there's different cultural implications to a marriage in the Osage nation than there is to a marriage in, you know, white America. So um, I think that, I think that would have been a really interesting place to expand because for one thing, as you're saying that like, there's that clause where basically these, these Osage women are being, to some degree, forced to marry white people. But then also, if there's any truth to what Bill Hale says about Osage marriage being culturally very different from white marriage, like, maybe it just didn't even matter, because it was a very different thing for them, at least originally. Yeah. Who knows? I guess, well, someone knows, and it's not in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I wish that was more of a, a, a point of interest for Scorsese to touch on. And it's the same thing with, I didn't, 
I didn't love how he tried to make Ernest. I think there was an attempt to make Ernest kind of seem like, is like, oh, is he evil or not? But to me, he was just very obviously evil from the start. Like, so, like, I guess I appreciated him, the the idea that he wrestled with his demons a little bit because to mm-hmm. me it made him feel a little more nuanced. But to me, it also never made him feel like a good person. Like, I, from from not maybe maybe not from the first scene but from like the second or third scene onwards i'm like oh this guy is just fully and irredeemably evil and even yeah. by the end like there was not a single scene where i was like you know maybe he does have a heart i'm like no he's this is the most evil character leonardo dicaprio has ever played yeah like there's i feel like there's an implication in the last scene that like it's like oh maybe like did he know or is he going to redeem himself by saying he didn't just give his wife insulin and that he gave her he added something else is he going to admit it to her but to me it's just like that doesn't matter like (laughs) he was doing it and he knew what he was doing and there's like i guess you could say like oh robert de niro's character told him to that it would just slow down his wife and she was going to die anyway or something like that but like it feels very obvious that Ernest knew he was killing his wife. And apparently in like the real story too, or at least in the book, there is, uh, I, I think there's an implication in the book that when Bill and Rita's house blew up, Ernest actually planned to have his wife and children in that house when it happened in real life. That was part of the FBI investigation that they found out. And I don't know. I, again, I can't speak for the truth of it because I think it was, that was stated by uh, what's it, Ernest's son at the time uh, was when he was interviewed by the FBI. He said that his father wanted them to stay in the house, but I think he had a cough or one of the kids had a cough. So they went home instead. Um, and that's just like, I don't understand why Scorsese would go out of his way to make him seem less evil than he was. Cause that, that is very overtly cause there's, there's, there's the idea that he cares about his kids in the movie and that's why he testifies or something. But it also kind of sounds like he was very okay with his kid dying and him taking over the conservatorship and getting all the money. And I don't know how I feel about that. Cause like, and it would make sense if Scorsese was more subtle with that approach, but uh, again, he never felt good. So there's no point in making him seem less evil. Uh, so, yeah, I don't understand, like, why he chose that subtlety. And that's why I feel like there's a better movie there. And if he wanted a more interesting character that wasn't just straight up stupid and evil, then he should have delved more into the Osage aspect of the paranoia of living in that time. You know, so there there was something there that he could have played with rather than make trying to make Ernest a morally ambiguous character. because. <laughs> He just wasn't. <laughs> like, that's the truth. Yeah. I mean, I will say that Ernest was a pretty interesting character. Like, mm-hmm. I think that the way that Ernest is portrayed using, like, the trappings of a morally ambiguous character without ever being that ambiguous is, like, makes him a really interesting... Like, he's, he's kind of an interesting character for me, and I think that Leo does him really well. Like, mm-hmm. just because of that. Because, like, I don't know. Ernest has to be this huge. Leo's portrayal of Ernest is like he's willfully ignorant about what he's doing, 
but like only in the extremely short term. Like he knows exa- he he knows exactly what the end goal is and that he has every intention of seeing it through. But like he doesn't know if he wants to kill his wife tomorrow. Like maybe, yeah, it, maybe maybe it could wait a bit, right? Yeah, it, it felt like something <laughs> it was like a, a homework project he was procrastinating on essentially. Like that's how he was treating it where and I, I, I think there maybe was like there is a love aspect there of he did love his like quote unquote love his wife, but it was a very delusional type of love. Cause it's like, you yeah. can't love someone and also knowingly be murdering their entire family. That, that isn't love. And again, I, I feel like the movie was trying to be like, Oh, but he like, he kind of loves his wife. He's just doing what he has to do. Uh, he just wants well, the money. I definitely don't agree that the movie thought that was what he had to do, but yeah, well, I know what there's you're saying. A, there's a part where he says like, like, I love my wife, I just love money more. And that's what it felt like the film was trying to portray is... Big Walter White energy. There was, yeah, like there wasn't, there was, because there was a couple scenes where he does genuinely feel romantic towards her. And there there are scenes yeah. where they, like if they didn't, to me, if Scorsese didn't want to kind of hone on that point, they wouldn't have had many scenes of of them together, you know, being sort of loving, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been more uh, conflict, I guess. But yeah, yeah to, I think, to me that that theme didn't really stick. But I think, I think like, there was potential. I think like that's what's kind of interesting to me about the about that whole romance aspect is you're right. It did feel like he loved his wife, except that to me it didn't feel like he knew who his wife was. Like it felt like he loved something. He he loved something beyond money like he loved the idea of having a wife and the wife that he had built for himself in his head and that some parts of that were what he saw in molly but that he just like willfully ignored most of molly like he wasn't very interested in her beyond what he already knew that he liked and that's good enough for him so the fact that molly was a complete person uh, didn't matter because he had already decided what parts of Molly he loved and that was good. That's fine. That's that's all he needed. Which is why to me it felt like they were constantly like talking past each other because they both like they both had very different ideas of what that romance was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of just felt like she wanted a husband and he wanted a wife. And yeah. it turned out that they had some chemistry and and I feel like, you know, in that time, <laughs> people married very quickly and easily. Uh, so to them, it was just kind of like, well, we, we like talking. We like we get along. So why well, don't we Well, and especially you know? if there's that legal incentive that you mentioned. Well, that too. Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, it makes sense in the movie. And I, I, I do generally think at the start that they had a certain chemistry that I liked. I liked their dynamic. Um, so I, I did buy it at first where... I was like, oh, like, Leo loves his wife, or he loves his wife, but he also likes the money. But then when he starts killing, when you when they start revealing that, you know, he murdered the private detective, and he's killing, he's part of, he's knowingly part of killing the sisters and stuff, then it's kind of like, well, that's out the window. You know, <laughs> you can't, yeah. you can't have both anymore. Like, yeah. if maybe if you wanted to draw on that string more, they could have revealed that he knew more than he was letting on to by the end, like by the third act. 
And that could have been interesting. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, I like the way it was done because I don't, I don't like the, I, I don't like thinking of the universe where I sympathize with Leonardo DiCaprio's character in this for very long. Katsu, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I definitely <laughs> think this is the most evil character that DiCaprio's ever played. Mm-hmm. And like this movie, in my opinion, contains some of the most evil characters that Scorsese's ever put on screen. Specifically, mm-hmm. Bill Hale is like the physical embodiment of evil in this movie. Yeah. Um, and like Ernest Burkhart isn't that far behind. He's only he only doesn't get to be the literal devil because he's the protagonist of the movie. Yeah. And he's not I, I feel like if he was given the power of William Hale, he would have he would have done what he was doing. But he was he was the I would say like the apprentice in this movie, he was learning from him. So he didn't get a chance to be fully in command, you know? And well, and it's very important to the way that this movie plays out that uh, Ernest Burkhart is dumb as a box of rocks. Like when, you know, Bill Hale can do all of the evil shit that he does because he's very meticulous and plans out everything and like knows what he's doing. And if Ernest Burkhart had the power of Bill Hale in this, he would be caught and persecuted way oh, yeah. faster, <laughs> yeah. way faster. Yeah. Just because he wouldn't be half as subtle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, which kind of leads into the FBI coming in and they basically crack the case. They like talk to a random guy who, who witnessed the, uh, I think it was Byron taking Anna, right? into his car yes right before she was like the night she was murdered and leaving with her and like they literally just it's like they talk to a few people and it's uncovered very quickly because it like the truth is is like like you can't have all these murders happening and no one notices like it was there's some of they weren't really hiding it very well they were very cocky the way that it plays out too, it's like they get Kelsey Morrison, who's the guy that that you're, that you're talking about, and it's like Kelsey Morrison, did you kill this person? And he's like, well, hold on, hold on, I didn't do any of the other murders. And they're like, excuse me? Oh well, <laughs> I think we can help each other out. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's a, it just you kind of just need one one piece to unravel, and they were they were starting to get pretty careless with you know who they were contracting to murder and stuff, and well, set, or. Who, yeah, or who would have set up as well. I think everything, I think it's pretty quickly downhill from the time the one guy who's who's hired specifically to shoot a man in the front of the head becomes <laughs> yeah. best friends with him over the course of several months and then yeah. shoots him in the back of the head. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you yeah. can't mess up the job worse yeah. than that. Also, he, didn't, he never really wanted to do it, right? Like, he was a, a very hesitant participant. Because he was someone that really, it sounded like he he wanted to do random jobs that didn't involve murdering people, and then they got him to murder someone. He was like, "Okay, I guess," but like, I don't want to do it again, and I don't yeah. really want to be a part of this. But they kind of, I won't say blackmailed him, but they they peer they peer pressured him into murdering someone. Not to say he yeah. was a good person. Like anything, they hired but... him for a job, and then they told him the job was murder after they'd hired him, and he was like, "Damn it, I already took the money." Yeah, exactly. So, oh well, I guess I gotta kill this guy. He obviously wouldn't be the most loyal person in a, pro- <laughs> a prosecution case. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
Also, I want to say it. I was so excited to see Jesse Plemons in this movie. I think he's one actor that I literally never know what I'm going to get with him. And he's so good at that. And in this mm-hmm. movie, he was just, he was probably the most normal guy in the movie. You know, he's just, he kind of strolled in and he started talking to people and everything. It's, it's <laughs> kind of funny how like obvious it all feels once Jesse Plemons comes in. Cause he, he literally just walks to Ernest. He, he goes to Ernest's house and he's like, can I speak to your wife? And Ernest is just like, shaking like you could could really tell Ernest is extremely nervous that the FBI is there and it's like it's almost like Jesse like Jesse Plemons comes in and everyone just kind of admits to it and he's just like whoa like I didn't even investigate anything he just talks to everyone that could potentially be involved and he just naturally the case kind of unravels itself you know Mm -hmm. it's like because once the Ernest knows the FBI is there you know him and uh William William Hale start to panic and then they start casually they don't they don't physically kill off the people that could be tied to them but William Hale will like send them off to do a job but set them up to die essentially in that yeah. job and uh but that's when it's because then Blackie I think it was Blackie right he said mm-hmm. he sent for a job and then he realizes that but he's left alive and he realizes that he was set up so then he turns on them so uh yeah but yeah, I, I did like the third act in the movie, even though I'd say the it, it never really has a true climax. And the ending just kind of, it just kind of ends, you know. So speaking of that, I think this is the most important thing we got to talk about before we, before we start wrapping up. What do you think of the actual ending of this movie? Because it just sort of cuts away at the end from the trial to mm-hmm. something completely different. And uh, what, what did you think of that? The the podcast or the radio show? Is the radio shows. The Lucky yeah. Strike radio show. Yeah. Um I I thought it was I liked it I liked I, I guess I really liked that scene. It was very different from the usual, you know, cuts, black screen, white text, and then you get pictures of the real events that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh I liked how he was able to wrap up the story while also commenting on the fact that it was like a very meta scene of like, he's commenting on the fact that people profit off of movies about people dying He's and, and find entertainment from it. He's commenting on, uh, at the time, I think, you know, white people making, it was like, it was a white cast of people in that radio show making content about a story that isn't theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, he's commenting on the fact that I think they were sponsored. He, he clearly shows that they were sponsored by a smoking company, which Lucky also strike. profits from the death of people. Um, yep. Sponsoring a true crime podcast of people profiting from the death of people. So he's capturing the irony of that, which um, is could potentially be a commentary on Apple producing that movie. Um, and he and he himself shows up in a very and it felt like a very personal moment because I don't know has he shown up in his movies any of his movies before. He has acted before, and I think he's been know, in his yeah. mo- in some movies of his as cameos, but it's okay. not it's not usual. Like he doesn't show up in all mm-hmm. of his movies to do that. Yeah, but I think it's like he's. I mean, I know he realizes this. He's part of the problem. Like mm-hmm. he is the person whom he is one of the people who makes movies where people get entertainment out of, you know, horrible things that happened. And then go on about their lives like nothing ever, like nothing ever happened. Like 
he's one of the people who benefits from this entire from this entertainment funnel that takes like real tragedies and turns them into you know true crime podcasts like you know not he doesn't profit from true crime podcasts specifically but like he is part of that system and i think he's mm-hmm. very aware of that yeah and so and, him yeah. delivering that last line is you know very it's it's both self-referential and like kind of i mean it's both self-aware and also like very it's a heartbreaking last line too yeah but i also think that's what because i i think like personally i hate it when you'll have commentary about one thing but it's you're criticizing other it's like we need less we need less white directed movies from a movie directed by a white man. <laughs> like you'll see a lot of that or like the oscars where it's like it's like oh like you'll have these celebrities talking about like oh we need to like fix climate change and stuff and then it's like well how did you probably flew in on your private jet to go to the oscars you know and stuff like that mm-hmm. but this felt it's like M- marty felt very conflicted and it's like he himself was saying i am part of the problem and it was like he wasn't blaming he wasn't blaming anyone else but it was saying i feel part of the problem and you could tell he feels very conflicted on on the movie and his and his presence in the movie and i wouldn't say like i still feel like it's kind of weird that you know it's like he acknowledges it but he still made the movie from a white perspective and with a primarily white cast right but also, but I, want- I appreciate that he is aware of that. And I, I feel like a part of him wishes that he could do it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost like he's like, he's not sure how. And it's like, this is kind of like a message of like, I really want us. I really hope in the future, because he's like 80, right? It's really tough for him to be the the champion of like, <laughs> it's like oh, like, yeah, I'm going to start, I'm going to change the system. You know, it's kind of tough for him right now. But it's it's almost like a plea for like, like the next generation of filmmakers, like, please, like, don't make the same mistakes I did, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think the best comparison I can draw to this is like, compare this to like an Adam McKay movie. Like, don't look up for the big short. They like point at the viewer and they're like, this is your fault. You do this. You asshole. This is your fault. And Martin Scorsese is like, no, I realize I'm part of the problem, but we can do better. Mm -hmm. And like, we should do better. And it feels, and like, even though, even though it's still someone who is part of the problem, complaining about a problem in a movie that isn't, that is as well, in some degree, part of the problem, it feels more sincere and more like, it feels less like the apology is part of the problem. Cause he, he is very conflicted about it. And like, I know Martin Scorsese, not as a person. I know Martin Scorsese and like what he does for film and for like um, influencing and trying to raise up the next generation of filmmakers. He is like very involved as a producer on for filmmakers who are much, much, who would not get $200 million from Apple. And like, Mm -hmm. there is nothing that Martin Scorsese wants more in this world. I'm sure than for this movie or these events to be turned into another movie by an Osage filmmaker. Mm -hmm. It's just that no one can do that right now. And like, I hope that, 
I hope that when I say no one can do that right now, I hope I'm actively wrong in saying that. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, like, I hope that movie eventually exists. And like, if that movie exists within Martin Scorsese's lifetime, 100% he'll be a producer if he's allowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that like, I just like that only works because like you said, he's not blaming anyone else, but it only works if he's on screen. You know, I think yeah. that was such a genius way of doing that. And, you know, and I, I still feel like, like, I mean, like, the guy is 80 years old, and I feel like he is commenting in a much more progressive stance than Pete directors half his age on the state of Hollywood and the state of people profiting off these movies, you know, mm-hmm. and you could argue like, maybe this is like, oh, he profited from it. And now he regrets it because he's 80. And he's kind of looks back on his life. and He's like, oh, maybe like, I wish I directed movies differently, you know? Um, but also like, like I, <laughs> there's quite a few 80 year olds that are n- nowhere near as progressively minded as him. And it sounds like he worked very well with the Osage community to make sure that they, the story was told in a way that they felt respected. And again, that's not something we see too often in movies about indigenous. I mean, there's, I was watching the ridiculous six the other day on Netflix. And that's a movie where Adam Sandler, like Adam Sandler produced it, but it was like, there was a lot of uh, indigenous peoples in that movie that felt very hurt by the jokes that they were making in that movie. Right. Even though it was Mm -hmm. a lot of, about, those communities and uh like the again adam sandler's like a 50 year old you know he's he's probably he, he should be much more progressive if that makes sense but so i really appreciate that although there could have been more done uh marty took he took the blame and he was very self-aware about it but i think he did his did the best that he could um mm-hmm. given his situations yeah um, so because this is a, uh, because this is a losing it over Leo episode, we gotta say, we gotta compare this to other Leo movies. Of course. At least a little bit. So where do you think that this Leo performance ranks among oh, his geez. other performances? I just say it was a very middle of the road one. I don't know. I, he never really stuck out to me. Like I was never like, wow, this is one of the greatest actors of our generation. I was just kind of like, this is a very good performance, you know? Yeah, I think I think I actually have to say pretty much the same. Like, I think it's I think it's upper middle of the road for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's like high mid tier. Mm-hmm. But like, when I was watching him on screen, I was like, this doesn't feel like anything special for Leo. Mm-hmm. For any other actor, this would be insane. Like, this is such a, this is a very good performance. Mm-hmm. But I've seen a lot of really good Leonardo DiCaprio performances. Mm-hmm. And I think that even though he's able to bring, like, he brings a lot to Ernest Burkhardt. He makes him uh, very stupid, but also, like, very evil and very interestingly both of those things. Mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, amazing that he's, like, there a lot of actors would not be able to do, might be able to do, like, one of those three things uh, decently. And Leo yeah. does all three of them excellently. However, uh, he's done he's done much better and more interesting performances uh, that aren't this one. Like mm-hmm. he's he's very good, and you know middle middle 
top middle tier Leo is still like insane Amazing. for a lot of other <laughs> yeah. actors. Yeah. I think and so, you know, that's that's where I would put this. As far as Leo performances go, it's like upper middle of the road. Yeah. I like I'd almost say like a role like in Don't Look Up, even though it's much worse character, like that was a role I'd never seen Leo in. You know, that really I'd yeah. say challenged him. And I thought he pulled it off pretty well. Yeah. Uh, even though the movie was terrible. So sorry, just had to put that in there. No, for sure. I don't like the movie. Uh but yeah, and this has just felt like I've se- I've seen Leo, like I guess this was a, a much more pathetic character than he usually portrays, kinda. But it this didn't feel too off the mark for him, you know. Well, and especially like for Leo in a Martin Scorsese movie, because we also watched The Aviator and um, and The Wolf of Wall Street, which are like insanely good insanely varied performances from Leonardo DiCaprio. Like the Wolf of Wall Street still that's that might be my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance because it's yeah. just like it's it is like there's no other performance that he's done that's quite like it. Even if there's mm-hmm. a lot of things where it's like, "Oh, you can tell this is the guy from the Wolf of Wall Street, but mm-hmm. it is not Jordan Belfort." Yeah. And like um and like this movie is nothing like that. It's like, it's almost, it is a little bit like he's not the star of this movie, which for the sake of the movie is actually very good. Like, I don't want Ernest Burkhart to be the star of this movie more than he is. Mm-hmm. I think that like, I think that the real stars of this movie are uh, Robert De Niro as Satan and then <laughs> Lily Bur- and, and then like Lily Gladstone. Yeah. 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 Actually, Robert, Robert De Niro, I felt he had a much bigger role and presence than he's billed as, if that makes sense. Like, Leo's the star, but there's a a few times where he's actually not on screen for, like, an extended period of time. But all everything that happens is as a result of the actions of William Hale, you know, Robert De Niro's character. So that's why it feels like even when he's not there, he's there. So, Yeah. yeah. There's not a moment where he's not felt, at mm-hmm. least. Yeah. So. So yeah, I don't know. Like, good. Yeah, good. Good Leo role. Nothing. Nothing out of the ordinary, though. So yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is Killers of the Flower Moon. I guess we'll be back the next time Leonardo DiCaprio makes a movie. Probably another Martin Scorsese movie, because I know they've just announced that they're doing their next movie together again. Yeah. Which I mean, I'm gonna watch it. So wait, what, what would Hell you rate? Yeah. What would you rate the movie? Uh, this Killers of the Flower Moon. I think it's like a. It's probably like a soft nine for me. Mm. Like, I mean, it's that, that's that's a nine out of ten. But I don't think it's like a. It's, it's not like a. It, it's not like it's not like ten, and I want to be, and and I want to like not build up to the hype, so I'm gonna just put it down to a nine. It's like. It's definitely better than an eight. Mm-hmm. I'd say for me, it was like a seven, I think. Which is tough for me to say. Because, yeah, I, it's a good movie. I just, yeah, something it's, wasn't clicking for me. There's definitely, like, I I really, really, really hope that within my lifetime, if not within Scorsese's lifetime, I get to see the same historical event from from a perspective from the perspective of the Osage because I think this was as close as Scorsese could do to the perspective of the Osage which is 
very notably not from the perspective of the Osage. And like, yeah. that's, that's what it is. Like he, he would not be able to tell that story, but some people can, and mm-hmm. I really hope they get the chance to. Yeah. So, you know, the last thing I'm going to say is once again, if you have the opportunity to, and you can do, and, and you should, if you listen to this podcast and you watch movies, support indigenous filmmakers, frankly, support any smaller filmmakers, because that's the only way that we eventually get bigger filmmakers again. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, some of the indigenous filmmakers behind this, or some of the people that were behind this movie, like Lily, uh, Lily Gladstone, Kara Jade Myers, they were at the point in their career where they were considering, do they move to a different career? And Mm -hmm. like, that should never be like, no one should, no one should be in that situation for the reason that they're just not getting cast because no one's making indigenous films. And I don't know that that's a hundred percent the reason of that for that. But like, if there were more people making, if there were more indigenous filmmakers making movies and being able to have their pick of the litter, from uh for actors the the these two actors wouldn't be in dire situations like that yeah i'd I'd also say that like please i really hope we get to a point where indigenous people aren't just cast in roles that require an indigenous person and that we can see like we can give opportunities for roles where you know it's it indigenous matters have nothing to do with the movie it's just the actor was right for the role, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like that might be part of the issue. Like not of indigenous stories are being told, but also really need to look at cast, like not just casting like other, other races just because it's like, it's like an American movie, you know, like I'm sure, I'm sure Lily Gladstone is a good enough actor to portray a character. That's not like that does, a character that doesn't involve indigenous uh, heritage, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess like one thing I want to say is when I say there aren't, when I say like support indigenous stories, I don't just mean like that doesn't necessarily only mean stories which are necessarily about indigenous people. Mm. Obviously support those as well. I want to see those stories, but like if it's a story about, if it's like a romantic comedy and it happens to be made by an indigenous person who wanted to se- tell that story. Well, that's st- that person is still going to have a harder time getting their romantic comedy to screen than For Adam sure. Sandler will. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so like, just, I, I think that, um, I think that the biggest strength of diversity in filmmaking isn't just that we get stories that are specifically and necessarily about minorities, but that we get additional perspectives that like people that aren't minorities just can't give. Like I, I, I'm not a filmmaker, but if I was, I would only like, I am somewhat limited of my ability to tell stories from the perspective of black people, indigenous people, Asian people. I just, I can, I can make stories where those are the main characters or I can make stories where that doesn't matter. But like, a, an Asian filmmaker is going to be able to make a, to make those same stories with a much different perspective. And that mm. perspective is also interesting. Like yeah. all those perspectives should be things that we have access to. Yeah. Agreed. All right. 
So that's gonna call. That's that's gonna be it for today. I can't remember how we end these ones. Probably I think we used to word. say like the next. We don't do the last movie. We usually do like the the next Leo movie or something. I don't remember. Oh uh, well, which so like, we don't have we another. Could, <laughs> yeah, if, if we could, we would. But we gotta we gotta like that. That will resume when we can get into the point where we have like four planned out. Yeah. So Agreed. look forward to that point whenever that is. Yes. You talk too much. No, I don't talk too much. Just thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I didn't realize this was a race. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs> what was that? That's how you are. I don't know what she said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. 